0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here.
1: I invite you this morning to listen to this introduction to the Bible found in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is one of the most staunchest statements in the Bible regarding trust in God. While the psalm is simply titled A Psalm of David, as with many of the psalms, it is impossible to confirm of David As with many of the Psalms, it is impossible to confidently state which period it comes from or if King David wrote it exclusively. The Psalm speaks of trouble from enemies, adversaries, false witnesses, and violence. But this was true for many of the periods of King David's life. There is such a marked change between the first half and the second half of the Psalm which may suggest that it's actually two different psalms stitched together or more of a composite work made by an editor. Psalm 27 can appear like a personal autobiography containing the high points of confident faith and the depths of anxiety when things fall apart. Kind of a mixed up cry for help held together with a declaration of the greatness of God and trust in God's protection. Notice as you listen, the movement between the verses of praise to lament and uncertainty, and then a return to praise. The cyclical nature mirrors our lives. This is the stuff of our existence. Hear now Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my faith. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, this I seek to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he shall hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He would conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me on a high rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry out. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, do not cast me off, do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries for fault witnesses. False witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out of violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thus ends the reading.
0: Let's sing together. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be silent. The
2: Remember, as a child, ever being afraid of the dark. Fear of the dark, nyctophobia is what it's called, and among children it is the most common fear of all. But we know that it's not so much the fear of the darkness itself, but the fear of that which may lie in or behind the darkness, right? Did you ever fear the darkness of your bedroom at night? Or did you ever fear the darkness under your bed at night? Or the darkness in the closet that was right next to your bed at night? Or the darkness under the window in your room under the bed? Uh, you know, that it just goes on and on. Fear of the dark. And you forget as a parent, um, you know, what it's like to be a kid and to fear the dark. Uh, when my kids were young, I, I could never find any of my flashlights in the house. (laughs) I had always hidden strategically my flashlights throughout the house, about a half, I don't know why I did this, maybe because as they say, you just never know. Um, Or maybe it's just because I'm actually the kind of guy that hides flashlights strategically around the house. It just seemed like a dad thing to do, responsible and mature, practical. Like Metamucil, right? So I'd have all these flashlights strategically hidden around the house and I could never find one when I actually needed one because my kids would find them first and then re-hide them in their bedrooms. And parents, we learn learn that uh, to a child, a flashlight is a very cool toy. It's meant for not only shining the light into the darkness, but especially discovering what's in the darkness. You put a flashlight in the hands of a child and she'll flip the switch on it, right? And, and she'll shine it into the dark closet or into the darkness beneath the blankets under the bed. Under the bed where all the Legos are and the, the fossilized Fruit Loops and old socks that have been missing for years. Children, they shine flashlights not to eliminate the darkness, but to illuminate it. That is to say, to see the darkness better. And if you, as a parent, walk into a room and just flip the light on, the game is completely over. The fascination is lost. Because the child knows that the only way she will overcome the fear of darkness is to see what is in it and what's not in it. And for grownups, Darkness is something I think that we try to eliminate altogether. In fact, we illuminate everything all the time. Uh, Just this week, uh, I did an experiment. I I did a walkthrough at my house to count all the the light bulbs that are in my house. And I counted 112 light bulbs, uh, another um, eight or so night lights, and of course, six or so flashlights hidden strategically around the house. But it's like light on demand, right? We never have to deal with the darkness. And the effect that has on us is that we become more and more uncomfortable in the darkness. Do you dread coming home at night to a dark house? Do you ever try to fall asleep with the TV on just to keep a little light on in the room? Do you have little accent lamps around the house that you've programmed to turn on when the sun goes down? Maybe we work so hard to eliminate the darkness that we have forgotten how to see in the dark, how to navigate our way through it, how to trust when we're in it. And the kind of darkness I'm talking about now is not the physical absence of light, but the dark realities of our world and the dark times in our lives, the so-called dark nights of the soul. Carl Jung he was interviewed late in his life. He was asked about the essential factors to happiness and well-being. And um, he, he was asked, what are the, what are the, critical, the critical factors in, in, in being a happy person and, and having well-being of mind? And he said that among the five, and the one that I found most fascinating, was that it's important to have a philosophic or religious point of view that's capable of of coping with the vicissitudes of life, as he called them. Jung said that those with a religious orientation or a moral framework in which we make meaning of life have the greater capacity to thrive emotionally when things don't go well for them. And he called them the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, the sudden uh, unexpected changes of circumstance and fortune, They're life's gut punches, dark times. And we know that these come in various forms. Dark times sometimes come in the form of tragedy or loss. And we all know this kind of darkness, and if we haven't, we will someday. It's it's part of life. Um, It's a sudden accident, the the loss of a a loved one. It is uh, the unexpected, life-threatening or life-changing diagnosis. It's the breakup, it's the job loss, it's the setback, it's the disappointment. And these are times when it's difficult even just to see the ground beneath your feet, let alone the path ahead. And you just, you just feel like you're groping and stumbling around, feeling through the darkness. And it happens to all of us. And one of the questions that we ask a lot of times in dark times like that is, why? Why me? Why this? Why did God allow this to happen? C.S. Lewis, he wrote in his well-known book, The Problem of Pain, uh, a, a way to try to respond to this question about the why. And in his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. God shouts in our pains. And this is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, God uses dark times to shout to us, to get our attention, to to wake us up. Hmm. Then C.S. Lewis lost his wife, Joy, to cancer. And he changed his mind about all of that. Suddenly, he didn't have the answers. And what he said in his later book on grief, he said, we can't see anything properly when our eyes are blurred with tears these are dark times and sometimes we can't see through the tears all we can do instead in those moments is is to reach out for the hand of Christ or the hand of Christ through the hands of other people and dare to walk and we call this faith and every one of us will go through those kinds of dark times they're unavoidable I wish this weren't true But while the darkness of grief and loss is universal and it's unavoidable, there is another kind of darkness that I want to talk about today. It's a kind of darkness that is entirely avoidable, actually, but which strangely beckons those who are faithful to journey toward it. The kind of darkness I'm talking about now is is the darkness of the world. The darkness of the world that fears the light and the love of God. It's the darkness of evil, injustice, and oppression. It is the darkness of indifference to the suffering of others or to the struggles of others. It is the darkness of denial and accommodation and resignation that says, there's just nothing we can do about the darkness of the world or about how it impacts other people. And in our culture, we are raised to fear that kind of darkness. But the truth is here that the fear itself fears us even more. Darkness always thrives in darkness. It always thrives in denial and in silence. It's only dispelled when those who are faithful dare to shine the light of God into it. If we're brave enough to do it. And this is the message that you heard read by Reverend Amy from Psalm 27. This ancient psalm writer is in deep, deep trouble. A really dark place. He is, it seems to be, physically under attack. His life is imperiled. Darkness surrounds him and closes in on him as his enemies encircle him. Death, it appears, is coming for him. And he describes his situation in graphic detail. Maybe you heard it. He says, brutal people and fierce enemies attack me. Real enemies and armies. He says, people tell lies about me and make violent threats. And maybe the worst of all is when he says, even my mother and father have deserted me. That's when you know things get pretty dark it's a pretty dark time for this psalmist. He is in the crosshairs of life. His whole world has turned its back on him, and darkness gathers in. And yet he begins the psalm with these extraordinary and surprising words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? His, his present circumstances have forced him to make this hard decision, will I, fear, will I fear the threats of the world or will I trust in the strength of the Lord? Maybe the truth of his situation is that he's already made that decision and that's what gets him into trouble to begin with. We don't know a lot about his story, as Reverend Amy said. We don't know how things really got this bad. We don't know what he did or what he said. We don't know how he poked the bear or which bear he poked. But the psalm here is not a psalm of confession. This isn't somebody who has done something wrong or sinned as we might say. Someone who's committed a wrongdoing and now comes to God seeking forgiveness and a clean heart. This is someone who seeks God's vindication. He prays to God with this extraordinary confidence because despite his bleak circumstances, he knows his heart is pure. He's done the right thing. Whatever he has done, he's acted with integrity. And whatever he has said, he has stood for what is right and what is just and good and pleasing to God. And now the world wants him dead for it. Have you ever tried to do the right thing and suffered because of it? Have you ever acted with some integrity and a pure heart only to find that your intentions are questioned or your actions are criticized or misunderstood? Years ago, a colleague in ministry of mine was struggling with the fallout of having to fire one of his very popular employees who sadly had crossed a line with some of his female people on his team. This was a very popular employee, very well-liked and very successful, a pro at what he did. But what he did was inexcusable. He had to be fired. He had done some great harm. And so my friend fired him. He had no choice. And then to protect the identities of those that he had harmed, he refused to reveal publicly the names and the reasons for the firing. And immediately, my friend was really attacked for having ulterior motives, for a lack of transparency, even acting vindictively. And his integrity was called into question uh, by many of his congregation. In fact, some of his leaders asked him to resign. And it was just devastating for him. He called me one day and he said, I did the right thing. I acted with integrity, I protected the innocent, and now I'm paying a heavy price. And it's not supposed to work this way. And he asked me to say something to him over the phone, anything that might just make him feel better. And I could think of only one thing to say from the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and, and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because your reward is great in heaven. I won't tell you what he said in response. (laughs) But what Jesus meant there is that God honors those who with pure hearts and deep faithfulness dare to act on what is right when the world so often turns its eyes from what is wrong. There is nothing painless about that, which is why the psalmist goes from this great confidence, as Amy talked about in her introduction, to this period of self-doubt in the middle of this psalm. That's when he gets punchy with God. And he says to God, listen when I pray. Answer me, have mercy on me. He says, I'm so eager to see your face, so don't hide it from me. Don't neglect me. Don't leave me all alone. You dare to shine a light into the darkness of this world and the darkness will always try to make you doubt yourself or doubt God's presence. And the psalmist here is worried that God doesn't see him and he longs to see the face of God for reassurance. Sigmund Freud, he said that the origin of our childhood fear of the dark is separation anxiety. And to look into the face of a parent as we know, whether we are as children or as parents ourselves, when a child looks into our face, they see, they see presence, they see reassurance and trust. And the psalmist here wants to know he's not alone. He says, I long to see the face of God. And maybe what he really means is he longs to, to know that the face of God sees him, to vindicate him for the good that he's done. We all need that reassurance Daniel Borston was a great librarian of Congress. Uh, Borston uh, found this little blue box in the archives of the Library of Congress one day. And in the box were the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets from the night that he was assassinated in Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865. These personal effects had been uh, gathered by Lincoln's family and kept in this little box for years until about 50 years after his death, they were handed over to the Library of Congress. And that box for about 50 years had never been opened until 1976 when Borston, on Lincoln's birthday, chose to open it for the first time. And in the box were two pairs of sunglasses a penknife, a cufflink, a handkerchief, and a wallet. And in the wallet, he found a $5 Confederate bill and a newspaper clipping. And that clipping was a reprint of a letter written by John Bright to Horace Greeley. And in that letter, John Bright referred to Abraham Lincoln as one of the greatest men of all time. Why did Lincoln save that clipping? Because nobody else was saying that in those days. No one saw in Lincoln what Bright saw in him. Most predicted that Lincoln was going to take the whole country down, and so Lincoln kept that little clipping, and he carried it with him everywhere, even to his death, to reassure himself that there was somebody else in this world who saw in him what he saw in himself. And the psalmist, even his own self-doubt, he gives himself a pep talk at the end. I love it. He says, hey, hope in the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, self. And the psalm is a powerful legacy for us. It's a call to action, really. The psalmist not only models for us how to cope with the vicissitudes of life by trusting. But he actually models for us what it looks like to seek the face of God and knowing that in seeking the face of God, it will lead you into the vicissitudes of life. Where there we are called to shine a light into the darkness. This is the kind of faith that is so key to our well-being. As we close this series, it's a reminder that Every one of us struggles with what's called cognitive dissonance. We know on the one hand what we ought to do, and yet we struggle to do it. And that makes us not well. And we can't be well if we look at a world that is unwell and we feel helpless or afraid to do anything about it. So let me just lift up two very quick, simple practices For how to shine a light and dispel the darkness of this world, the first is remember your baptism. Every day of your life, look in the mirror and recite your baptism vows. Those that you spoke or those that were spoken on your behalf, in the Methodist tradition, it looks like this. We vow to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Did you know this is what you promised to do when you're baptized? To look at the world's darkness and to refuse to accept it, to fear it, to instead believe that you are a light meant to shine in it, to act for what is right and for what is good, to stand with those who don't have a leg to stand on, to speak for the voiceless in a silent world. Remember Your baptism. Emma Goldman was an activist at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. She uh, was a radical of her day. Emma Goldman was her name. She fought for women's rights and for workers' rights, for universal education, all these things that today we take for granted. She, She was considered an anarchist of her day. And for that, she did a lot of jail time. But when she got out of jail, she took a job as a midwife in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, basically helping deliver babies to poor mothers. And a lot of Emma Goldman's uh, activist friends thought that Emma had sort of simmered down and mellowed out with her political views. But whenever a baby was delivered, Emma Goldman would whisper in the baby's ear, Rebel, rebel. (laughs) Remember your baptism. And the second practice for dispelling the darkness is to lean into the wind of resistance. Because the psalmist reminds us that the world will always push back, always, whenever we shine a light into the darkness. And it's not only inevitable, it turns out that it's actually essential for our growth Some of you are scientists here. You've heard of Biosphere 2. The Biosphere 2 project is an earth system. It's found in Oracle, Arizona. It's a research facility. It was constructed as basically a biosphere to, 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 to study living systems and earth systems. It's the largest artificial closed system on the planet. It's called a vivarium. One of the most interesting discoveries made by Biosphere 2 scientists had nothing to do with innovative technologies and methods of farming or how to save the earth, unfortunately. Instead, the discovery had to do with the role of wind in the lives of trees. And it turned out all the trees inside Biosphere 2 they grew rapidly, actually more rapidly than they did outside the system. But they all fell over before reaching maturation. and After examining the root systems and the the outer layers of their bark, scientists realized that it was a lack of wind in Biosphere 2 that caused a deficiency in what's called stress wood. And stress wood helps a tree position itself to maximize absorption from the sun. It also strengthens its root systems. And without stress wood, a tree can grow quickly, but it can't support itself. It can't withstand the normal wear and tear and survive. Trees, it turns out, need the resistance of the wind to thrive over time. So it is with us. So don't be afraid of the wind. That's what the psalmist tells us. Hope in the Lord, he says, as he leans into the wind. Be strong. When the wind blows, will we fear the threats of the world, or will we trust in the strength of the Lord? Our takeaways for today, God honors those who dare to act on what is right in a world that often turns its eyes from what is wrong. Remember your baptism, and take courage, and lean into the wind of resistance